The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to another bonus episode of The Things We All Carry. I'm joined today by Christy of Sweary Therapy. I first heard of Sweary Therapy and Christy via the Unusual Buddha podcast. A friend and fellow firefighter, Jim Martin, runs that page and podcast. Y'all go check him out. He's at The Unusual Buddha on Instagram. You can also find Christy on Instagram. She's at Sweary Therapy with the best tagline ever. It's just fucking therapy, y'all. A quick study of Sweary Therapy and Christy's approach was all I needed to know. I wanted her as a guest on the show. She brings an irreverence to what many see as a staid and sedate practice. As someone who attends to buck tradition and normalcy, I can appreciate and celebrate her style. Today is the first of what I hope will be many conversations with Christy as this show evolves. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder, you know, love or care about y'all enjoy the show. So it'll be in the vein of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. All right. So this morning we're sitting down with Christy out of Sweary Therapy. She's from Florida, and I'm going to let her give her background in the therapy world, and then we'll move on from there. Good morning, Christy. How are you? Hey there. I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for the uh, quick little intro. Appreciate it. <laughs> it was definitely quick, so I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. It's weird. You'd asked me previously when how long I've been doing therapy. And as therapists, we have to go to school. We see clients at that time, and then we get registered with the state. And different states call them different things. Some places call them associates. We're interns here, registered interns. And we have to collect a bunch of hours after we graduate, but before we're licensed. And I started that process in 2019. And then I actually got my license at the beginning of this year, 2022, January like 5th. <laughs> I started out as licensed mental health counselor. So I've been doing this for a few years now. And Sway Therapy has been in business um, since this year. Once I got licensed, that was the, the, the switch I made to become the sweary therapist and really embrace my, who I really am. <laughs> so let's talk about sweary therapy. Why do you call it that? What's the purpose behind it? It came out of a couple of different things actually. And it's, it's working as a student and then as a registered intern under other people and just being like, I don't know, told you can't dress that way or you have to make sure you talk to the patients this way or this, that, and the other. And that's just not who I am. I'm a very sweary person. And I was actually talking to one of my very good friends, one of my roommates, and he made the joke, you're just the sweary therapist. And I was like, I don't want to be the sweary therapist. And then I started asking my clients, like, what makes you comfortable with me? What made you pick me over another person? And and at the end of the day, a lot of them, like, you swore during the intake. And I'm like, great. So I just drop a few F-bombs and that's what people want? Like, what the fuck? And they were like, no, it's, it had more to do with by you being authentic and swearing and talking like I do, it let me know that I can talk the way I want to. I don't need to censor how I feel and what I really want to say. And so you know, authenticity is really, really important to me. And once I really started embracing who I was 
and not censoring that for anybody, my clients started opening up so much more. And they were able to be really who they were. Because I'm sure you've been in a therapy room with somebody that you're like, if I say how bad this really is by saying this really fucking sucks, they're going to freak out. Or they're going to not like that language or whatever. That was exactly an experience of mine. It's it's that comfort and that, like you said, that authenticity. Without it, you just don't get that connection. And as as a firefighter or in general as first responders, we definitely... We definitely at home with swearing. That's exactly, and we're yeah. fluent veteran. beyond fluent in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my veteran folks that I know, the first responder folks I know, anybody in law enforcement, and then I'm none of those things. And I'm a big sweary person. So some of us are just like that. So I really wanted to make a space where people would feel safe to be who they are, and. Being the sweary therapist felt like a really fun way for me to do that. It's funny, I had a lot of pushback from certain therapists telling me it was unethical for me to be the sweary therapist and have the tagline. It's just fucking therapy. But that tagline came out of a conversation about it. It's just therapy. And more and more people are starting to embrace that. But it's not like we're committing you. We're not broadcasting it anywhere. We're not doing rocket science or brain surgery. It's just therapy. We're just talking. And that's funny because the other day I was having a discussion with somebody. I had to do a class after work one morning and and I I had to run because I had an appointment at noon. I had a therapy appointment at noon. And I said to him, I said, oh, I got to go. I got therapy. And he looked at me and he was like, what the fuck's wrong with you? I'm like, what do you mean? I said, there's plenty wrong with me, but there's nothing specific. It's just, it's something that I'm doing now. It's just, it helps. And uh, yeah. and so I know that it is. It's just fucking therapy. Go out and do it. We don't have to be so afraid of it. And I get where that stigma comes from. There's years and years of stigma there. And there's, think back to like watching TV, right? Yeah, watching Law & Order back in the day or whatever other, I don't watch a lot of TV, so I'm pretty bad at this game. But I can tell you, you that know. I'm one of the few that can be proud to say I've never seen an episode of Law & Order, so I'm good. Oh my God. My mom would have that shit on. I don't know what channel and it would just play all day. So (laughs) that's what we would watch. A lot of that. She watches all those shows. But anyway, half the time on these TV shows, whether it's that kind of show or any other show, who's going to see the the shrink? Who's going to see the therapist, right? These people that are really fucked up or went to see something really bad. And so they're portrayed as like broken somehow. Yeah. When therapy should be something that we're all doing. Like when I was in school, they drilled it into our head. Every good therapist has a great therapist of their own. Everybody's got stuff. We've all got stuff. Everybody's been through something. Yeah, and it's easy for me to sit here today and go, hey, just go. It's fucking therapy. It's it's not mm-hmm. a big deal. But it took me years yeah. of fighting it and, and fighting that, that stupid stigma that we all talk about, especially in the fire mm-hmm. service. We, there's that stigma of weakness when you say, hey, I need some help. And let's be honest, we all fucking need help. Yeah. <laughs> If you don't have something to talk about with a therapist, you're lying to yourself. That's just all there is to it. That's how I think. So what brought you into the therapy world? A number of different things. I always have been interested in psychology, behavioral sciences, and things like that. And when I was an undergrad, couldn't decide what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I took a bunch of different classes. I ended up with a liberal studies degree. And one of my areas of study was behavioral sciences. So I took just a boatload of different psychology and sociology classes. And I really loved it. And it was fun. And I just left it at that. And I went and became a phlebotomist after that. And I was, you know, working, drawing blood. And I ended up getting a job as a teacher teaching phlebotomy. And at the college, they were really pushing everybody to get their master's degrees. And I wasn't yet ready to make the transition. So I just went for, I did a general psychology master's degree, no clinical aspect of it at all. But during that time, my sister had been struggling with drug use. And she went to rehab for the first time about a year before I started the program. 
and or no the year i started the program she went to rehab for the first time and i went and visited her every single weekend for three months in those visits we did the family therapy and we did the group therapy we did all the things so i did all the therapy things and i had a couple of therapists there be like you really seem to get this stuff you ever thought about you ever thought about this and i was like now nah, y'all are crazy but that was really my first experience working within that space for myself for my sister and she struggled with addiction for honestly all the way up until the end of her life and so that was probably 12 years. She was in and out of different rehabs, sober for periods of times, really fucked up for other times. And the more she struggled with it, the more I thought about going back to school again after I finished my first master's degree. And I thought I wanted to work with folks that were dealing with addiction, but then I realized that if I did go into therapy, I, I actually didn't want to specialize in that because it was just too close to home. And then my son was born and he has autism. He's low needs. He doesn't need a lot of support or whatever. And that got me kind of thinking another way of, okay, this world isn't really designed for people that don't. If you're not around hold or around peg to fit in that round hole, it's hard to get by. And that started making me think too. And then it was really just a lot of little things with like school and stuff while I was teaching all the different problems my students would have and all the different things, watching them grow as humans, not just like I can draw blood now, but like they had the confidence now to go do other things. Oh, I guess I can be more than a phlebotomist. I can go be a nurse. I can go be a doctor. I can, and all my students started going to these other programs because I started focusing on more than just teaching them to be a phlebotomist, but to teach them to be more confident, how to communicate and all of these things. And so like a combination of like my sister's issues, my son's issues, and then watching my students really grow. I was like, you know what? I'm going to try that. I'm going to try my hand at this. I finally had enough confidence in myself too. And I went back to school for being a counselor. And it was all well and good. And I was just going to take my time and do that slowly and do the counseling on the side as I continued to teach. And then 2020 happened. I mean, 2020 sucked for everybody, I know. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, the suck started a little bit early for my family. That was the year my sister was murdered in February is when we found out she was missing for a few days. And then we found out that she'd been murdered by this gal. It had nothing to do with her drug use either. It's funny, you prepare yourself to lose somebody to drug use and then something totally different happens. You're like, what the fuck? I wasn't uh, ready for any of this. And so she was murdered in the end of February. And I believe our town went on lockdown the day of her funeral in March. And it took a while for us to have her funeral because her body was in another state and we had to get it all down here. And it was just a whole, the whole thing. It was a whole fucking thing. And I was already out. Obviously I took out, I took off because of my sister and then COVID made everybody go home and my program got canceled. And so I had all this time at home and we can get more into all the different feels that I went through and all the shit that was like, but honestly, like it was a few months later, I was like, why am I waiting? the fuck am I waiting for? Like, I have no guarantee of tomorrow at all. Yeah, none of us do. Exactly. I knew that. I knew that everybody knows that. I'd always take something like this. You're like, wham, your face. You're like, no, fuck. All right. And so that's what really pushed me to hurry up, get my license hours, hurry up, get my license and really start pushing to become a therapist full time. And while I didn't open the practice of swearing therapy until this year, I started practicing as the swearing therapist that moment. Like when I finally went back to work and started seeing clients again, which is around June of 2020, I think I was ready to start seeing people again. And I started slow and I built it up slowly and then word of mouth, it just took off. And yeah, it was after my sister's death and I was just like, I don't have fucking time to wait around and, and do things anymore. This is what I really want. This is what I'm really good at. I'm just fucking doing it. And that's how the swear therapy came to be. And that's like the long and the short of it. Where do you practice? Do you do online or do you do in person? And is it 
it's you're in Florida, so is it only in Florida mm-hmm. that you're working with people? Yeah. Is that only yeah. where your license is? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, we can only practice where we're licensed. And so right now I'm only licensed in Florida, though I am looking to expand that. I do all telehealth. Obviously, when I was in training. My school was actually online, so I actually learned how to do therapy online. We did video software and all this other stuff. So I was actually really always been really comfortable in the online space. And then when I became a registered intern, I had to go to in-person, and I hated that. Hmm. And then I did it. It was fine. And then I actually had the luxury of getting a spot at this equine therapy place where they – not the kind where you ride horses, but where you interact with horses – and we would use that as like a metaphor for, I see you're doing the same thing over and over that horse and it's not working for you. How is that like when you're trying to work things out with your wife <laughs> or your boss, or I see you're yelling at the horse and they're really shying away from you. Can you think of a time when that's, when does that happen at home? That kind of thing to use it more as like a metaphor for how they solve problems and approach things and helping them become more aware of the connect between your body language and your, your, your intentions might be to be nice, but your body language is threatening or vice versa. You might be acting very assertive, but your body language is very, in the horse world, it would be like submissive, right? And so that was really awesome. So I really discovered that I actually really do working with people, but I only want to work with you in person if we're outside. <laughs> if we're outside, if we're in nature. But otherwise, yeah, I do it all online. And I'm just super comfortable in that space. So I do walk in the park with a few of my clients, but everybody else I see across the state via the internet and i'm looking forward to there's something called the counseling compact that's been signed now by i think 15 states once it was signed by 10 states it went into it became law and the states that had passed it and what that's going to do is it's going to create license portability for licensed mental health counselors and they're actually in the process of getting that set up and like the first like commission on it will be meeting i think october of this year and then sometime hopefully in 2023 probably toward the end they'll have a system whereby members states like if i wanted to get licensed in in your state and your state's a member state i could basically just sign up through them like hey i have this license from florida i'd like to practice in virginia here's my money give me practice privileges so it's just, that's it, how that'll work so it's just a form of reciprocity yeah mm-hmm, yeah it'll be some a version of that yeah which we don't have right now at all i guess before we get into the meat and potatoes of this conversation I, <laughs> we should probably preface the fact that you you are in florida and that this isn't any kind of paid advice you're not telling people what oh, to do yeah. this is just to talk about some of the topics that have come up in and around the, the episodes i've put out already yeah yeah you and i you and i had a phone conversation a couple of weeks ago and we just we said all right these, these are some of the things we're seeing let's just talk about them mm-hmm. we're not offering advice specifically to people so Along those lines, I think one of the big ones is we talked about was uh, this idea of big T trauma versus little T trauma. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where you'd like to start with that, but I thought our talk was fascinating. So I'll, I'll let you go with that and then I'll, I'll jump in when I can. Sure. It, it's that phrase, big T trauma, little T trauma. It's, I don't love it, but it is a convenient way for people to understand the idea of trauma. I think most people think of what we might call big T trauma, those big, horrible events that happen in your life. You know what I mean? You got in a car accident, you're assaulted, somebody died, you witnessed something terrible. One time big thing. And that is a completely valid kind of trauma, but it's not the only kind of trauma we go through. We have little T trauma, which is all of those, we're going to say smaller things, but they're no less significant, but they don't have that big one time thing. It's like a lot of repeated events that occur that really at the end of the day make you feel unsafe. Now, sometimes we're not able to connect with our feelings enough to know that's what we're feeling is unsafe. But at the end of the day, 
if your system, if your nervous system feels unsafe and that happens repeatedly over and over and over, that's a trauma and it fucks up your nervous system and not to an error, like it's not uh, irreversible, but it creates patterns that you end up living out and recreating because you're not really conscious of what's happening or you don't know how to get to the next stage of healing, if that makes sense. When, when you say it creates patterns, what, what do you mean by patterns? I like to think of our body as a computer and it wants to run as efficiently as possible. And so it creates shortcuts, like macros. If it was a computer, it'd like run a macro every single time. And so if you grow up in a household where your parents are drunk all the time and they yell at you and you have to learn to manage their emotions so that your life doesn't suck. You start thinking about things in a certain way so that you can keep yourself safe as a little kid, right? And then those pat those become like habits. You always check this thing. You always do this thing. You're always making this assumption because in your life at that time, that's the reality. But that pattern gets baked into your system. Well, you're like, I can't wait to leave home. You turn 18, you move out. But your your body is still running that old program that you wrote when you were a kid. So I guess in a first responder world, it, and I can only speak for a firefighter because I've never been anything outside of mm -hmm. that in the first responder world. To me, it's the it's that we sit with our back to a wall so we can see exits and we can see people. Yeah. It's that on mm -hmm. edge waiting for. I know whenever I go into a place, I make sure I know where all the exits are. And I scout right. that out first. And, and I, it, it's a second nature to do it now. And. So I guess that, might, that, be, yeah. that might be what we're mm -hmm. talking about in the first responder world. Yeah, and actually I was, you know, I just went through some training on trauma treatment, EMGR tra treatment, which we'll talk about, I know, in a little bit. And one of the folks mentioned that there's some interesting research to show some first responders don't end up with PTSD from the job, and some do. And, and then what's up with that? And it may be that for those of you coming into the field with your own past little T trauma, it might have set you up to be more, I don't want to say susceptible, but I don't have another word right now, primed your body to be more ready to respond in that way to trauma. But also what you're saying makes a lot of sense. If you're in a world where, you know, knowing where your exits are repeatedly over and over is important, why wouldn't that become the habit in the rest of your life? Actually, I like what you were just talking about with the the coming into the to the fire service at different stages because I've talked to mm -hmm. I've talked to numerous people who came in started with the Explorer program at 14 to 16 years old and then I've also yeah. talked to in, in my own experiences I came in with life experience behind me I came in as an, as an older recruit into a, an academy and I had a discussion yesterday with a friend about just that I mean, I wonder if the people coming in with some life experience already or actually better equipped to handle with some of the traumas because they've built up a system throughout their life already. I guess it would depend on where they were in their trauma healing. If it's not something that they've ever addressed at all and their nervous system is stuck in this pattern of being highly aroused and scared and not feeling safe. And then you come into a job where you're highly aroused and you're not really safe all the time, or you're facing things that are the result of other people not being safe. That might not be the best combination if you haven't done any work for that. You know what I mean? Which, yeah, which is a piece that we didn't discuss, at least in my discussion yesterday. So that, that definitely mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So it's like my understanding of trauma, and there's different theories that explore what it is and how it works and all that other stuff. But the, the version I subscribe to has to do with how your nervous system in, in, is connected to everything and how memory 
is more than just in your mind. Your body, there's a whole book on this called The Body Keeps the Score. Yep. Your body. Got it, got it on the iPad right now. <laughs> yeah, it's a great book. It's a little heavy on the science, which I'm a big geek, so I love that. But there's so much out there to support this idea that it sucks that we separate mental health from physical health because your brain is just this, it's the same, right? It's your body is your body. There's no separation between what you think and what you feel and how you go about in the world. Like it's all connected. And we like to think that it's not, but it is. Oh, it's definitely connected. Cause you, I know <laughs> that when things aren't going right emotionally, things aren't going to go right physically. And, I, and yeah. I mean that in the sense of, okay, I'm not feeling it in the head today. I'm not going to, I know my workout is going to not going to be great. It's just not going to be there. Exactly. Unless there's a lot of anger. Cause I've, I've been using a tagline that <laughs> anger is a, a hell of a pre-workout. And yep. <laughs> so that's one addendum to it. Yeah. I like to think of it like when you're little, you go through your life and you have your experiences when you're young. That's sort of when you're writing, if you want to go geeky with the computer analogy, the computers run off of like the motherboard, the motherboard has BIOS, like the basic, this is what we need to run. And I like to think of it like when you're a kid, you're writing the code for how your system is going to run when you get to be a grown-up. Problem is, if you've ever talked to a kid, have you ever talked to an eight-year-old and asked them to tell you, I don't know where rain comes from? <laughs> yeah, that it's would like, be an interesting conversation. So this same brain that's going to give you this crazy story that makes no sense about where rain comes from is also the same brain that's making sense of their experiences as a kid of all the things that are happening to them. So this is a lot of the little T trauma where we don't really realize that it's happening. And so what's really interesting, too, is that little kids can't take like other people's perspectives, you know, this whole theory of mine, it doesn't really come online till you're a little older. So if I'm holding a box, for instance, and each four faces of the box have a different picture on it, one has a heart, one has a star, one has a circle, one has a square. And I put the box and I sit across from a kid and the kid's looking at a heart and I'm looking at a square and I ask this kid, which, what am I looking at? They're probably going to tell me what they're looking at if they're little enough. They have, they don't have the ability to take my perspective yet. The brain hasn't evolved into that level yet. And so this is really important though, because let's say mommy regularly works three jobs, has two other kids, husband of shit, and the kiddo is having a real bad day and screaming and yelling because they hurt themselves. And mommy, I just can't fucking take this right now. Please go in your room. I'll, I'll come in a little while. This kid is unable to know that mom's got all the shit going on. Like 25 year old them can figure, can know, oh, mom was really busy, da 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 da. The five year old them huh. doesn't have that perspective. All they know is I that must, they were told to go away. Why was I told to go away? Mommy doesn't love me. I'm not important. My feelings don't matter. There's a lot of different meaning that can be made out of that. And if you think of that same five year old to eight year old brain that's going to tell you the crazy story about how rain is made, what are they going to make up about why mommy sent me away? And now that's a kind of benign example but what if it was more than that what if mommy was drunk all the time and literally unavailable all the time what if daddy hit somebody what if other things happened and sometimes it can just be there's a lot of screaming and yelling in the house and i grew up like that and i was never in any physical danger but five-year-old me didn't know that when my dad screamed out loud i wasn't gonna be hurt that's terrifying to a five-year-old yeah and and you can I guess it also goes back to watching those communication patterns. If there, if the communication mm -hmm. pattern isn't set properly in the house, as that five-year-old is learning, is learning to communicate the same way as mom and dad or whoever's in the house communicates, and and that follows them through life as well. Mm-hmm. 
It does. And, and it's, I'm using these like smaller examples, but that's what now you have this pattern. You have this pattern of behavior that you have to engage in order to get, to get your needs met. So you can try to feel safe. And sometimes those just ways that we manage work when we're young and then when we become adults, they are no longer adaptive. They no longer really get us the, the, the result we're looking for. And they end up leading to other maladaptive behaviors. Everyone is probably familiar with that. You start using substances or you start engaging in other risky behavior. You're seeking something most of the time. What are you seeking? Oh, us as we as firefighters, we don't do any of that. Trust me. No, not ever. You guys are like straight air, right? Yeah. <laughs> so when it comes to big T and little T trauma, even though you might not like those the terms there, is no, is, yeah. is there is there a difference in how you would treat those as a therapist? Not really. I guess it depends on what kind of trauma treatment you engage in as a therapist. So for me, I tend to assume that most clients have some kind of trauma in their history. And to have like a trauma-informed lens is to sort of acknowledge that most people are behaving the way that they are for a reason that it makes a lot of sense, right? I don't see someone that has a diagnosis of depression or anxiety or obviously PTSD as somebody that has anything wrong with them. They're not defective. They are responding appropriately to the fucked up shit that they've been through in their life. Yes, there are some people that just, you know, randomly have anxiety and they have no real good reason for it. Sure, those people exist. But really, at the end of the day, when you get down to it, you really get talking to these people. It's very rare that they don't got something somewhere in their history that makes that anxiety make sense. And I think that's a big difference, like from the medical model that therapists used to be trained into. And this is another reason why folks might be afraid of therapy is that there must be something wrong with you. Your brain is fucked up. Whereas the, the trauma-informed lens says you experience some things and you are responding in a way that makes total fucking sense. And what we're going to try to do as a therapist is try to help you understand what it is that you are experiencing there. Like what feeling is, ha you know, it's a feeling of unsafe, right? That's, that's a good one to go with. I don't feel safe. Well, if you don't feel safe, how do we get to the bottom of that? And so sometimes that involves teaching people simple things like how to feel your feelings. <laughs> you don't feel safe and learning to distinguish when you do feel safe. And what goes along with all of those things? And so there's different ways to get into it. You can, we tackle core beliefs and getting to the underlying programming, if you will. What are those patterns of beliefs that I'm operating with the way that I view the world? If I think everybody is a scary, dangerous person, that's going to influence how I interact with people. If I think people are safe and trustworthy, I'm going to interact with folks in a much different way. There's EMDR, which uses, like you usually hear with like eye movement or bilateral stimulation of some kind that helps. The idea behind that is like reprocessing the memories in this in a similar way to the way your brain does it when you're sleeping with rapid eye movement like that's where the, the theory is based in and it's really complicated and way too much for us to get into too much here this one fascinates <laughs> me and and from a personal standpoint because i did my yeah. first emdr session this past uh wednesday yeah it's, it's exciting we can talk about that some other time <laughs> but i'm just it, I, I don't know how much time you would need to discuss it. it maybe if you can give a, like that brief synopsis and maybe we do another show where we just talk about emdr but i know yeah. it's been mentioned by a couple of guests and and some of the listeners have asked me about it and maybe we get into it a little bit today and and see where we go sure sure so i just went through training on it and i'm still wrapping my brain around a lot of it and 
So the way that I understand it is this has a lot to do with memory and the way that memory is coded. So we were talking earlier, if you go through an event, if something happens to you, whether it's a little T trauma or big T trauma, doesn't really matter. Shit happens and you store it in your memory, right? The problem is sometimes some of that memory gets stored incorrectly. And so we'll just use big T trauma and as an example, like a PTSD type of idea, because I think this is easier for people to wrap their brains around. You go through something really big and you can have a huge car accident. Let's just go with that. Big car accident and it's big and it's scary and your system doesn't really, for whatever reason, know how to process it. And so when it stores it in memory, it store, it, I like to think of it as like it stores too much. It's, it, and so when you access that memory, instead of it being like the way you remember going to grandma's house when you're little and it's just this sort of fuzzy image in your head, you get everything. You get all the emotions, you get all the body sensations, you get all of it. And that's your flashback. That's your nightmares. That's your right? The whole body becomes activated. And that's not how memory is supposed to be. A memory is not supposed to be that present. It's in the past. The past is supposed to be in the past, but it gets all fucked up. And so we access the memory and it's like happening in the present. Our brain cannot distinguish between the past and the present. And that's why our whole, you have the the shakes and the anxiety and the freaking out and all that good stuff. That makes sense so far? It, it definitely makes sense. Okay. So a lot of this theory. So really EMDR came up because the lady that developed it, I forget her first name, but her last name is Shapiro. She happened to notice a pattern of something that she was doing automatically. And she started doing some research. She noticed that when she would think of this troublesome thought and she was moving her eyes back and forth really fast, like from you know one side of her field of vision to the other, she noticed that she felt more calm afterwards. And she was like, oh, that's interesting. And she started experimenting. And this is a lady's a researcher. She studies brain science and all this stuff. She's geeking out on it. She's starting to, oh, that's a neat little thing. So she starts doing some research and we also know, so simultaneously, you know, research has shown that REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, that stage of sleep is super duper important and connected to the way that we consolidate memory. If people's REM sleep is all jacked up, they have trouble with memory. Okay. I don't know the cognitive science too deep on that side, but what this lady figured out through her like happenstance experiment that she just came up with literally walking down the street and the science behind memory and rapid eye movement during sleep, she put all that together and realized that there's something. And here's the cool thing about brain science is we don't really know why or exactly what the mechanisms are at work here. And that's the same thing that like you're taking Prozac or any of those things. We don't actually know the full mechanism of how or why it works for some people and not for others. So like all brain sciences. This is what we think. This is our best guess right now. And so the best guess is that when you can stimulate both sides of the brain in the same way that you do when you're sleeping with that rapid eye movement, you know, your eyes are moving back and forth really fast. Somehow that is connected to the way that your brain is filing all those memories. So when you're doing EMDR, you're, you have to set up your clients. You're not going to just come in and let's do some eye movement and you're going to be good. There's a lot of setup. You have to make sure that your clients put one foot in the present and one foot in the past that we can talk about this stuff, but they can stay present. And you do that through teaching skills like grounding, self-soothing skills, breathing. You know, we have one that everyone learns called the container. So they gotta be able to self-regulate. Because what you're gonna do is you're gonna target very specific memories and you're gonna figure out what are the core beliefs? Like, what does that say about you as a human? We've all made meaning out of it. Like I was saying earlier, this happened to me because I'm a terrible person. This happened to me because I have no control over everything. This happened to me because I'm powerless or I don't deserve to exist or, whatever, there's a bazillion options it could be. And 
that combination of negative core belief of what this means to me, plus this like miss or this incorrect or faulty storage of this memory together create the problems that if you're living with PTSD, then you're going to want to drink yourself till you're numb or whatever. And so by targeting that and activating that bilateral stimulation, what we're trying to do is to get the, the brain to recode the memory reprocess it. One of the things about memories, every time you access a memory, you fuck with it and then you restore it. It's never quite the same. Memory is not infallible. It does change. Yeah. You corrupt um, it with, with your present day thought. Exactly. So you start trying to like re literally that's reprocessing is the R in EMDR. So you're literally reprocessing the memory through this bilateral stimulation, whether that's through the eye movement or tapping or tones, or there's a lot of different ways that people do it. And again, it's like magic. You're like, I don't really know why this is working other than we know that it does some cool shit in the brain and it helps your brain process it different. It restores it in a way that doesn't have all of the body stuff with it anymore. It puts it in the past and it lets you stay in the present, if that makes sense. It definitely makes sense. Okay, cool. Because... That's really the first time I tried to break it down <laughs> <laughs> since I did my training. So I hope that makes sense. <laughs> this is your final exam, actually. So, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel oh, God, I'm on the spot here. Shit. <laughs> and, and, and I know you just did that a couple of weeks ago, so I appreciate you breaking some of that down for me. And the the I, I was going to say funny, but that's not the word I'm looking for. The ironic thing, I think, is that you say that REM sleep is what helps you properly process these memories or these events. Which in just our world, in what's that? Just life in general. But in our world as, as firefighters, we wake up at, at 1.30 in the morning for, for at, let's, let's go with one of the worst things that in, in any of our experiences could be a pediatric code. So meaning that the oh, ped yeah. is, needs CPR and, and pe people are called in to take care of that. You perform a pediatric code, then you're going to go back to your bunk and your oh. your. REM sleep has been interrupted already. You're not going to get that proper sleep again because you're going to get up a couple hours later to, to go home. You never go into those proper cycles of sleep. And and oh, yeah. add to that the fact that we don't want to fucking talk about that. Yeah. Where are we going to go? We're going to go home and talk about it to people? We're going to talk about it to friends who don't know what it's like? No. So we're not going to exactly. talk about it. And then we're not going to process it. And then it's going to get, you know, go back go back to that computer analogy. The, it's not going to get partitioned well enough. <laughs> and and yeah so it's just going to come back and haunt so yeah it's that sleep again that goes back for firefighters well, i feel like we're just setting you guys up with schedules that you guys keep and i'm sure there's reasons behind it that they can tell me but i don't think it's good for you i had this discussion uh, with somebody who <laughs> it's definitely not good for us but but how do you provide community protection without 24-hour coverage and I know, you know there's I, I don't know. there's a variety of schedules and none of them are none of them are all perfect, obviously, because mm -mm. You, yeah. it's still either you're doing all days and then some nights or, or you're doing 24s or you're doing 36s or 48s. And it's, it's just a crazy schedule any way you cut it. Yeah. One of the talks I've had with people is we're not designed to do this job for 20 to 30 years. And, and that's an no. antiquated view of the job. And mm -hmm. and I, I, I love to push people out of this job earlier but that's a that comes back to a whole retirement thing, and that's a different subject. Yeah, and I feel like that's a big part of it. Like, we, yeah, we don't have time to talk about capitalism or retirement or the state of our our, our society. But I, those things really are impacting our mental health. Just like you just said, like just in the job, what are you going to go do after that? Can you retire early? Probably not. And so I think people end up staying in jobs that are not good for them longer than they should because they really do feel trapped and 
there's a few that there's a stigma too if i leave them i suck i failed there's a feeling there's both of those feelings there's a feeling of being trapped there's a feeling of the stigma or even the fact that man when that door closes behind a firefighter that leaves that door slams shut yeah, like, like mm-hmm. you don't hear about it again. You don't. You. It's very rare that you hear that name even brought up again. And that's something that, as an individual, I've been working on and trying to stay in touch with people who have left the department. But there's also that there's that addictive nature of the job. It's that chaos that we like. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not knowing what's coming next, and and then you hear those tones drop, and it's for a structure fire, and and it's that that intermittent reinforcement is just so powerful. I think you you hit it on your head too, like. We were talking about your system gets used to being wired a certain way. So you get that that you know, adrenaline chunking kind of thing. You get used to being in a state of high arousal, of excitement, of chaos. And then when you're out of that, what else gives you that feeling? Well, that calm scares. I, I speak for myself. The calm, up until recently at least, it scared me. And I didn't know what to do with the calm. And I, I think that was hardwired into my brain a little bit from not just from this job, but from other things. And uh, yeah chase the chaos and and that doesn't lead mm-hmm. to any that doesn't lead to anything good not usually especially if we're not in touch with our feelings and so that's the thing like you mentioned you we come into the job as a firefighter for example already carrying our own stuff probably already wired to have an aroused system if you grew up in chaos i grew up with a house that yelled a lot and there's a lot of we'll just say excitement but it wasn't always really fun excitement and so i didn't join the fire service but instead i became a wicked overachiever <laughs> and I, and I, <laughs> I also didn't know how to say no to anything. And I'd be doing like 25 things. When I was in grad school, I had three internships. I was working full time at the college. I was a mom. I had my own life of other things I was doing. And it's just I was like, how do you have time for this? I'm like, oh, I don't know. And then my body was like, fuck you. And I had a giant seizure. And exactly. everything had to slow way the hell down. Yeah, right? Your body was telling you, you don't have fucking time for this. And let me, <laughs> let me remind you how how much you don't have time for. Exactly. And it took me a lot of time to really, like, oh, my gosh. Like, when I didn't have school and when I didn't have internships and my life started slowing down, it was like, I have to sit with me. And I have to feel these feelings and I have to learn to be comfortable being quiet and being calm. And that's a hard thing, especially for people that have gone through trauma, have gone through some really fucked up shit. Feeling, it's all they say, all I ever want to do is to have a boring life and be calm. But then you give them that and they're like, fuck, what's wrong? This feels wrong. They're not used to it. So as much as they don't like feeling upset, as much as they don't like feeling anxious, you get used to it. It becomes the the devil. And that's one thing that we discussed after you listened to a couple of the episodes is that the, that theme of the guests struggling to to acknowledge and even acknowledge and, and actually explore how they felt about what they witnessed and they experienced. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. Hey, you do need to sit with it. You need to acknowledge it. You need to talk. You need to. And not just talk, yeah. not just the, the dark humor that we use at work to talk about it, but you need to talk to <laughs> right. somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times it, it may not even be the thing you saw. I have talked to some first responders and it's not as much. Sometimes it's definitely certain cases definitely sit with you. But sometimes it's like that case reminds you of something you've been through, that you've done, that you've experienced yeah uh, sometimes that comes up too and i think that's also important is we all are carrying around these feelings but a lot of us seem to think that feelings are dumb they're not important (laughs) or they feel really scary some people are afraid that if they feel their sadness all the way that it'll never stop and they'll cry forever and it feels very 
it feels very forever when you're faced with something that really is sad what? and it's a very blah emotion. You don't want to do anything. Right. Well, let's touch on that real quick. And this is probably the last thing we'll touch on for this one. Because okay. we talked about this when we talked a couple of weeks ago, that thinking the feelings versus feeling the feelings. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's important yeah. for us in the first responder world to to take this into consideration. So I'll let you run with it. And then again, I'll just jump in wherever. Sure. Yeah. Like thinking your feelings versus feeling your feelings. I have this one meme <laughs> and I share it with like every one of my clients and it's like this pasta making a face like what the fuck. And it's like my face when my therapist tells me to feel my feelings. And it's believe me, guys, I get it. I know it sucks. And a lot of people seem to think that they're feeling their feelings, but most of us are often thinking our feelings. And the difference would be we call them feelings because emotions are meant to be felt in the body. If you're feeling your feelings, you're noticing that your sadness feels like a heaviness in your chest or a ball in the pit of your tummy or a whatever. It varies for everybody, right? You're feeling the body sensations. If you're thinking your feelings, you're thinking, wow, I'm so sad. My life really sucks. Everything really is awful. Everyone hates me. This thing happened. That thing happened. Da, da, da. Those are all thoughts. Now, does it feel shitty? Absolutely. But it is not the same thing as feeling your feelings. And it is a unbelievably difficult process to learn. And for those of us who are really intelligent, as any whether you're book smart or street smart, I just mean like really intelligent intellectual people have a tendency to be really bad at this. And we will intellectualize the fuck out of all of our feelings. Okay. You know, I'll be like, oh, I feel this way, but it's also because of this and because of that. And I understand all my feelings. Look, I can see all the reasons why I am this way, but I'm not yet feeling any of my feelings. I'm just thinking about them. And until you feel them, your body, remember your body holds on to shit. Your body has to feel it too. Otherwise it just gets stuck. And if it gets stuck, it might turn into something else. And you know, that's how sadness turns into anger. This is, I like to imagine them as like little people, like inside out version. If you've seen the movie inside out, if you take sadness and you shove her in a closet and you tell her what a piece of shit she is, cause she's not allowed to be sad all the time. She's going to get mad after a while. And she's going to bust out of that door. She's going to make herself be heard. And it's going to be spectacular. Yeah, and then you're like, no, see, this is why I locked you up. And you lock her up again. And you keep locking her up, and she just gets more and more upset. And I know I, this when I talk about it this way, it makes people feel like I'm saying everybody's crazy. But I feel like we all have these different parts of ourselves. And, and you probably know that, too. You probably know oh, a part of me feels one way and a part of me feels another way. Like, you really do have different aspects of yourself. And if we're constantly telling one part of ourselves that it's wrong to exist... How I mean, what's that going to do to your psyche? What does that do to that five-year-old you that was, we mentioned earlier, right? That was sent away by mom too. And now you're turning them away. What does that do to you? Yeah, this, this is, and again, I keep going back to a personal note, but this is something we've done in, in my own sessions is, hey, tell me where that feeling is. And, and I, it took me a while yeah. just to identify that. And, and yeah. it was, I'll, I'll tell you, it was fucking uncomfortable at times. And it still is at yeah. times, especially when there's some powerful feelings being dredged up. Yep. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, because for a long time, you know, again, from my own personal standpoint, for a long time, it was okay. Let's just shove that shit away because we don't need to deal mm-hmm. with it. But you always, you're always going to have to deal with it. Eventually, you deal with it one way or another. And... I like, I, I don't know. I'm very big on when I first meet with my clients, I talk to them about the practice of mindfulness. So like I do all my work with my clients is all based on mindfulness practices. And I teach them like you, you learn to be mindful. There's a whole bunch of ways we can learn that so that you can start to be aware of how your thoughts and how your emotions are combining together to create your behaviors. And by being mindful, 
by understanding these things, by learning to feel those feelings, by learning to understand how those connected to certain thoughts, you can start to actually start to choose your response rather than autopiloting into various reactions that get you into trouble. Yeah. And that definitely makes sense. It's, it's, I do it on, on a, an informal basis. I, I understand mindfulness and meditation mm-hmm. and, and that's probably, that's probably going to be a topic for another show because that we can get into that. in a, well, upset on that. <laughs> um, but for me, it's, it is, it's that, it's that taking that moment when I, I receive news or a text or a call and just taking that moment and maybe even a night to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And that's been a change for me because instead of allowing the raw emotion to respond, I I sit with that. And now I Mm -hmm. hopefully let a a rational brain respond, not that my brain is always (laughs) rational. It doesn't always even have to be that way. Like when my sister died, I I was lucky that I had gone through all the training that I'd gone through and that I had been on this journey towards my own growth. Because I'll tell you what, when I started counseling school and they're like, feel your feelings. I'm like, what the fuck are y'all talking about? I'm not a natural at this, y'all. Like, mm mm-mm. I've had to work really hard to learn how to feel my feelings and to tell you where I'm feeling that in my body. But I was lucky enough to know how important that was. So that way, when my sister was killed, I knew I needed to do this right. It was going to fuck me up forever. I'm going to feel this forever, but I didn't need to be like, I didn't need it to turn into or transform into something yucky. It's yucky enough as it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't need to add to that. I do not need to add any more shit to this shit sandwich. It's already shitty. When she first died, it was very much like, all I want to do is lay in bed and cry. So that's what I did. I laid in bed and I cried. And my husband, my poor husband, he didn't know how to handle me because I'm not that person. I've never been a person that cries. Like he could count on one hand in the 10 years we'd known each other before that, the times he'd seen me cry. And now I cried a lot of things. I still don't really know what to do with you. <laughs> I'm like, it's okay. I don't really know what to do with me either. But I have to, I'm letting myself feel these feelings because I know that if I don't, it's going to fester. It's going to turn into something else and I'm going to want to numb out in some other way. So you have to let that stuff be felt so that your body can process it and you can get to a place where like, does it still hurt? Fuck yeah, it still hurts. But does it cripple me when I think about it anymore? No, I've learned that I can carry this. I can walk around with this pain and it isn't too much. I am able to do this. And it's not because I'm strong or any of that other shit. Everybody can do this. You know, I'm just human like everybody else. I just realized that this shit isn't actually going to kill me by feeling it. Yeah, I think that's a perfect that way practice. to put it. Yeah, that, that <laughs> like you said, it takes practice and it's a perfect way yeah. to put it. You, you, you have to... And again, I'm coming at this from a novice standpoint because this is a relatively yeah. new thing for me. But it, I had this discussion with a coworker last night via text. It's, a, it's okay to cry about that. He jokingly used the words, I cried like a little bitch. I said, call me a bitch then, man, because I, I cried in my sessions. More, It's rare that I don't cry in a session. Yeah, if you're really doing the work. And, and tears are really awesome. It really is your body's way of of getting rid of things. Like they've tested the chemical makeup of tears and depending if you're crying tears of sadness versus tears of happiness, there's actually a different chemical makeup in your tears because your body is releasing different things depending on what it is that you're experiencing. So crying is your body's way of letting you process those emotions. And yeah, sometimes at first you cry every single time you think of something because you've got a lot of stored up shit. You've been feeling that feeling like your tank is full. You got to make room for some other shit. And so you got to cry. You got to let yourself cry. You have to. And that's probably the biggest, scariest thing. That was the hardest part for me. Oh my gosh. So hard. Like, well, it's such I a... don't even have the same societal pressure as like a girl 
as a guy does. So it's even harder for you guys probably. And then within your field, come on. It makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense why that's hard. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's transformative when you allow it to happen though. Mm-hmm. And if you cry, you're going to feel tired. Give your body that chance to rest. It needs that space to then shift everything around and make, you just made space for stuff. And that's exhausting. And and that I was saying earlier, like our mental is not separate from our physical. Like physically, you'll be exhausted when you do this work. When you let yourself feel your feelings, sometimes that's all you can do for the day. Oh, yeah. Well, and there are a couple of sessions I've left. I've, I felt like I just had a workout. Yeah, absolutely. And our society's not really set up for the whole like mental health day thing. And we talk about it. But we're just, we're not really good at taking care of ourselves and giving ourselves permission to not be productive. And so I like to change my definition of what does productive mean? Like it is productive for me to sit on the couch and do nothing because I processed a big emotion today. It is productive in the sense that I'm going to be a better version of myself in the end because I'm taking the time to do this, which means I'll be able to do all the things that I really love and am passionate about even better later on. So I try to reframe the idea of productivity, but I don't always have to be producing something to be worthy of rest or something like that. I think that's a huge shift that our present day society doesn't really embrace. I, I think it goes back to that glorification of busy. Everybody, yeah. you, you, yeah. you, just, you just feel this, most people feel this need to do. And I feel it quite often, but there are times where I just sit on my ass because that's what's required. You know, I would challenge people who feel like they have to do-do to think back. Did you grow up in chaos? Is that what feels normal? Like, I know that was how it was for me. It felt normal to always be busy. And to being busy meant that my nervous system was activated. And my nervous system, and so that's where it's, it's, a lot of times that's where it comes from. And so you finally start, that's where we start feeling or feeling. You start feeling, hmm, I'm feeling this. And I really, doesn't really make sense given what I'm doing right now. I don't really need to feel this right now. So why am I feeling this right now? It goes back to and facing that chaos. Yeah. And so then practicing, you know, sitting with that. I just had a situation with my husband. We're driving this in St. Augustine and I was in the car and we couldn't find parking and I started freaking out. And he's, honey, what's wrong? And I'm like, there's nowhere to park and I don't know. And he's, it's okay. And I'm thinking, I don't know why my body was like, I'm about to be yelled at. My husband has never yelled at me <laughs> about shit like that ever. He's just not the kind of guy to raise his voice. But I might have grown up in a house that was normal. And so my nervous system was preparing me to deal with something that hasn't happened to me in 25 years. Yeah, you were primed for it. I was primed for it, right? And so finally he, he he's like, uh, why don't you take a breath? Everything's fine. And I did. I sat and I thought about it. I had to remind my body, you're fine. You're safe. I know you have this feeling. And that feeling is valid, but feelings are not facts. The feeling is valid. It's allowed to exist. There's nothing wrong with it existing, but I can also... Use my big brain and see that that feeling is not based in the truth or the reality around me. The reality around me is that I'm safe. No one's going to yell at me and I don't need to be panicking right now. And so instead of saying, telling that anxiety to go away or pretending it doesn't exist, instead I've invited it to ride along as a friend and just be cool. We're good. I got you. I'll keep you safe today. And I do my breathing techniques and all that good shit. And then it just eventually dissipated. And there's, I didn't have to do anything with my anxiety just because I felt it. I think that's another part of learning to feel your feelings that they are not meant to be fixed. Sometimes they're just meant to exist. Like the sadness that I feel when I think about my sister, you can't fix that. That's not going away. No. It's supposed to go away. Yeah, that's I'm not going anywhere. That. But other emotions are just as allowed. We don't have to fix all of our emotions. They 
exists for a reason. Anxiety helps keep you alert. When you're driving, you need to pay attention. Fear keeps you safe. Joy lets you connect with other people. Sadness lets you make space for other things. None of these feelings are bad. Anger exists to protect boundaries, keep you safe. So they aren't bad emotions that we shouldn't feel. We just need to allow them to exist so that we can understand what messages that they're giving us and then respond appropriately, which again, takes practice. I think that right there is a perfect spot to end this one. And uh, we can revisit the rest of the list later on down the road when you have some time to, to come back and talk to me again. Excellent. I like um, that idea. And well, I'm going to ask you the same questions I ask everybody because I want to wrap it up the same way. Um, and okay. and I don't know if you've made it through any of the shows or not. I don't care if you have or not. But what I do at the, <laughs> what, what I do at the end is I ask two different questions. One is One is about what we call an everyday carry because I call the show The Things We All Carry. And in a first responder world, we, we're all carrying something into a job, into a call. If it's a fire, it's it's whatever tools you use in the fire. It's a hose line. It's If it's a medical mm-hmm. call, it's an aid bag, whatever. But out of that call, we bring something out with us, and that's, it's more indelible into a, it, it, it. It's a little stamp on our soul or our psyche. And But I'd like to talk about what's an everyday carry for you. Is there something that you take around physically or even not even physically, just something that's always there with you that if you don't have it, you feel naked without? Hmm. It's interesting. I've definitely tried to make it so that I'm bringing with me like the practices that kind of help keep me grounded. My breathing exercises and things like that. Like I breathe every day. I do at least a small exercise every single day because that's the only thing that really keeps me grounded. But if we want to talk about like a physical thing that makes me feel naked, if I don't have it, honestly, and this sounds silly, but very normal is my phone. Not because I'm on my social media or anything, because I do, but that's not it. It's like my whole life is organized in my phone, my schedule, my access to like resources. When I'm talking with clients, I'm like sending them memes to make a point. Everything is in my phone. So it's too thick. So like my, I bring my spiritual practice with me everywhere. And I bring my phone with me everywhere. And if I don't have those two things, if I don't have access to those two things, then I absolutely feel completely scattered. And I, I just can't even. Perfect. I like it. So <laughs> the, the the last question is about a book, a podcast, a person, a movie, anything that you think would benefit the audience, something they can learn from or, or just have some interest in. Oh, my goodness. There's so many. So I'm a big geek on books and I read like a dumb amount. Let's see. Gosh, I don't even know. I'm going to go with something that I I encourage all my clients to watch. And you have to remember, I work with adults only, (laughs) but the movie Inside Out. Okay. I freaking love this movie because it does such a great job of showing the importance of every emotion. And for those of you that haven't seen it, I don't want to give it any away. It's basically this conflict between joy and sadness, right? And what happens when sadness isn't allowed to drive? But she's not allowed to be present. Everything fucking falls apart. And I think that the the takeaway from that movie is just so good that all the emotions are so important and that they all have a role to play and that you can have more than one of them at a time. And so if you haven't seen that movie, you should start there. I'll, I'll link the movie in the show notes. I'm also going <laughs> to link uh, The Body Keeps a Score as well, just because yes, I think yes, it's valuable. It was, mentioned in, <laughs> it was mentioned in a previous episode, so it's already been linked, but I'll link it again in this one. And uh, yeah. This will be released as a bonus episode, but it's still going to be, I'll still do the, the normal things with my links. Excellent. I appreciate the conversation so much. I know you, t- you have a busy schedule and, and I think you've got to get back to the airport and pick somebody up. 
Yes, I do. He missed his flight, so I have to go do that. <laughs> so uh, go take care of that. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and we'll be in touch, and we'll figure out another time to talk. Excellent. Sounds great. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other.